is Ben Guest, and today's conversation is with Adam Hutchinson. Adam is the athletic director at Earlham College in Indiana, and before that, he was the longtime head basketball coach at Washington and Lee University. He's also an assistant coach at Amherst College under legendary head coach David Hickson. Adam also played for Amherst from 1989 to 1993. And we have a number of good friends in common from Amherst, and we've been friends on Facebook, as it were, for a long time. This is our first in-depth conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. The first half of the conversation, or first two-thirds of the conversation, we talk a lot about race in America. And the last third of the conversation, we talk about coaching, leadership, and a little bit about music. Also, I made a mistake in this podcast. I didn't check my volume input on my microphone, so my voice is a little bit louder than Adam's, so just be prepared for that, and hope you enjoy. Thanks. Okay, Adam, great to have you on, and we were just talking off air, and you said something that really struck uh, stuck out to me, which is you had a question um, that you asked yourself growing up, which was, why did the world I was born into look so wrong? Could you talk about that? Yes. Um, so I'm, a, I'm from Newark, New Jersey, and um, my family, um, one side of my family, my father's family traces back to Virginia as far as we can go. Um, my mother's side of the family came in Ellis Island, um, Polish and Irish. And I was born in 1971. Um, the Newark riots for the Newark Rebellion was in 1967. Um, and uh, it's a matter of record that the National Guard was called in. They expended ungodly amounts of ammunition shooting at Newark residents. Um, the, the center of the city burned. Um, and when I was young, it hadn't recovered. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, residents left um, and uh, businesses left. So the tax base eroded and people who remained, me among them, um, didn't have access to jobs, didn't have access to um, wealth building opportunities. A lot of people didn't have access to healthcare. And you're existing in this place, in this New York media market, and the media, if you believed what you would see on TV, you know, you would basically be led to believe that your people were dysfunctional. And that's why, you know, you were living among, you know, falling down houses, et cetera, like that. Um, but I know the people that I know, and they're not dysfunctional. I know people who don't have two dimes to rub together, but they'll give you their last piece of change. Um, there's a story uh, my mother used to tell. My father was uh, locked up when I was born. And um, my father's people came to see her, to see me. And um, she didn't have the money to pay the hospital bill. And they emptied their pockets, which means they gave her the last of what they had to pay the hospital bill. Those are the people I know. Right? Yeah, we don't have the money to pay for this and pay for that, but we'll give you whatever we have so that you can get by to another day. To me, those are good, kind, generous people. And the world would tell us that we weren't that, that we were deserving of less. Now, when I'm telling you that story, you might be picturing my you know, grandmother or something. I'm also talking about my uncle who will stick you up, right? He's that person, but he's also the guy who will empty his pockets to take care of his newborn nephew. Um, and so I had this, I was presented with this picture that um, we were dysfunctional, that my community was dysfunctional. While I lived in the reality that, you know, it was a loving community, it was a supportive community, kind people. Um, and so I was left with this impression that the world was wrong. And just to clarify for the listeners, mother's side of the family is white, father's side of the family is black. Yep. Yes. What, what did that, to, to a teenage you, what did the world present to you and what questions did you have? 
So I didn't have the words to frame it until, and even then I didn't have the words because his words aren't so precise that they imprison you, but they're precise that they capture it. W.B. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk, when he talked about one ever feels his two-ness. That was the first time when I was like, aha, <laughs> you know, somebody was able to say what it was that I've been feeling and I couldn't figure out how to say to myself. Um, and so in the part of New Jersey that I'm from, and this two-ness is not unique to me, like it happens over and over and over again. We all say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get away from here, right? So that I can have access to opportunities so I can create a better life. At the same time, we all say we're gonna get away. We all say, but I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna give back. Um, and there's a book about a young man. He's a little younger than me. Um, the Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. Um, and I read that book and it like, I knew Rob um, and it like knocked me off my feet cause it was like, his background was so much the same as mine with one notable difference. Um, but then he went to Yale, I went to Amherst um, and we both had the idea of coming back to give back. He came back and read the book. So you know what, you know, his choices were. And I came back and I said, you know, I don't want to raise a family where my kids are facing the same challenges that I'm trying to eradicate. And so I chose to leave again. Um, and so, you know, it, that feeling of I got to leave, but I want to get back. It's that two-ness, right? It's, part, it's not exactly what Du Bois was talking to, but it's how it manifests among people I know. And um, and we're leaving for opportunity, but we go into places where when we get there, we don't feel comfortable, right? So I went to Amherst and I felt like a fish out of water, right? Um, but I always knew, I was like, okay, I'm willing to be uncomfortable because of the opportunities that this may allow me. Right, and now you're raising a family. Um, I think you have two teenagers, is that right? 18 and 16. 18 and 16. And on the one hand, and of course, as we talked about off air, uh, I've been out of the country for the past eight years. Um, on the one hand, it seems that there is something of an acknowledgement and something of maybe some kind of reckoning. Now, that's too strong a word. Um, but some positive change that's happening. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we both went to Amherst. I was, uh, you graduated and then I started the, that fall. Um, and we have a number of mutual friends. And you referenced something again off air about um, taking over the administration building in the wake of um, the Rodney King beating, uh, the police um, brutality incident for which they were all acquitted by, I think, an all-white jury. must have been an all-white jury. Um, yes. And then, so that's 91 or 92. Um, you, you mentioned Eric Garner. That's 2014. George Floyd. I just, you know, I lived in Mississippi for years, and I just read an article about um, Emmett Till in the New York Times, uh, who, you know, would have been my father's age if he were still alive today. So on the other hand, it's just almost an unbroken line of, um, of awfulness. So do you feel optimistic, pessimistic? And, and, and how, what do you communicate to your, to your children? It's a great question. Um, so what I communicate to my children has changed. Um, I used to tell them um, when they were younger, that uh, race means less and less as time goes on. Um, that it was more of a factor in my life than it was in theirs. And that when they had children, it'd be less of a factor still. 
Um, and there were a couple of occurrences that challenged that. One was when my oldest boy was going into the sixth grade, uh, actually two. One, he was maybe going into the third and he came home and he told me, daddy, I want my hair to be flat. And I'm talking about, now we were living in a all white area in Virginia at the time, a predominantly white. Um, and I immediately took him, put him in the car, drove him to New Jersey, you know, parked the car, we rode the, the path train in the city, took the subway. And um, his reaction at the time was, he was like, daddy, people here look strange. We're actually taking the, the ferry to Ellis Island. And uh, you know, you're in Jersey City, you're gonna see everybody, right? And I told him, no, Jay, I said, it's not that people look strange. I said, this is the world. I said, where we are is strange, like a homogenous, everybody is the same is strange. This is the way life should be. And I think that resonated with him. But a couple of years later, we were in Atlanta for the final four. We were walking down the street and my son said to me, um, Daddy, why are all the black people walking and all the white people in cars? And that one prompted me to talk to him about historical stuff, right? You know, um, transfer of wealth, et cetera. But at that time, I was still telling him things are progressing. I said that up until Trayvon Martin, um, when uh, I got the facts of what happened in the Trayvon Martin case before a verdict was reached, when I got the facts of it, in my mind, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to put this mask on and pretend that the world is okay, even to spare my children's feelings um, or to spare the feelings of, of white people around me who might be uncomfortable with my anger. I just decided I'm not gonna do it anymore because the facts of the case were there was an armed man in a vehicle following an unarmed child and he shot him to death. That's all I need to know, right? And white, black, whatever, that man should go to jail. He should be arrested that night, right? And when I heard he wasn't arrested that night, I knew that the kid who got shot was black and that the shooter wasn't. Right. And so from that point on, I didn't say that to a stranger. I don't say it to a friend. I don't say it to my children. I don't say it to myself that things are getting better. Um, I liken it to the scene in the Matrix where they talk about um, when I take the red pill or the blue pill. If you take the red pill, you can plug back into this narrative, right? And the narrative will comfort you, but it doesn't change the fact that you're being used as a battery, right? Or you can take the blue pill and you gotta live on a Nebuchadnezzar wearing shitty clothes, eating shitty food, right? But at least it's the truth, you know? And what I liken it to, or the way I interpret it, is that if you embrace the truth, you may limit your opportunities to thrive in America, right? Because complicity is part of the price for access. And by refusing to be complicit, you may be denied access. Um, but I decided I was gonna take that blue pill and I haven't told my children that since. It, it's such a, it, it's the, craziness um, of America that you even have to, that anyone has to make that choice, right? To, to um, well, it, it, it reminds me of a phrase that I often use, which is, this is America. And, you know, I, obviously I know a lot of nice white liberals. And when Trump was elected, you know, one of the common refrains was, this is not who we are. Um, and, and when whatever incident you want to pull out happens, this is not who we are. 
And it's like, no, this is, this is exactly who we are. This is exactly what America is. Well, if I can uh, draft off of that comment, part of us was required to maintain the illusion that this is not who we are, is the silencing of the people who have been constantly saying, this is what's happening to me. This is what I'm experiencing, right? And so that was, it was easier to silence those voices when you and I were growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, because we'd hear, right? Um, well, the police did this, or my boss did that, right? Or this person accused me of this in this way. But you can't know, you weren't there. And so you have to make a choice, right? You choose, I'm gonna believe this person, or I'm gonna believe in the goodness of our society, right? And most of us, given that choice, will want to believe in the goodness of our society. That's that comforting narcotic of that red pill, right? Um, and by doing so, we silence these people. They're not credible. Um, but that's changed in from 1992 when cameras were now this big and anybody could own them, right? That didn't exist when you and I were kids. Um, and then it's changed further where cameras are this big and we all have them in our pockets, right? So America hasn't changed, but now we're able to record stuff when we're, you know, when we have the time and the ability to do so. And we're starting to see the lie being constructed in, in real time, you record it. And, you know, um, what was that woman's name in, uh, in, in the park with the dog? Oh yeah, in New York, the white lady. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, she didn't, uh, she didn't come up with that on her own. She didn't just miracle into believing because I'm white, I can say whatever and the cops are gonna believe me. She learned that over the course of her whole life. So that wasn't new, you know. Um, Chauvin didn't um, miraculously one day be like, you know what, I can choke a man out in the street with people watching and get away with it. He didn't come to that moment in that moment. That was his life that led him to that place. America has always been that. Um, and what's changed is now people can record stuff. And so we can disrupt that silencing. If you look at Chauvin's defense team, I don't fully understand why they did this, but they attempted to dis discredit the people who were on the street and were testifying as if we all hadn't watched the video. <laughs> you know, you can drag them all you want. I watched it. <laughs> you know, I know what happened. Um, but without the video, assassinate the, with the character's witness and you can get your client off. Yeah, the, the woman in Central Park. Hooper. It was something. Yeah. Amy Hooper, maybe? Yeah. You know, it's not only that she's aware in the moment of her whiteness and um, how that will be viewed by the police, but it's you literally watch her. I mean, we just want a movie. You, you literally watch her weaponize her whiteness in a in a acting performance the way she changes her voice and her demeanor um and she probably went through her life describing herself as a nice white liberal mm -hmm. or thinking of herself as a liberal i'm just guessing you know based on on you know white lady in new york um but it's that you know, it's that weaponization. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've seen, as I'm sure you have multiple videos of recently of white women in particular, just creating this, you know, affecting this tone and this, you know, oh my God, I'm so scared. There was just something recently in a store where, again, woman's recording her. Um, I don't know. I don't even know where, what the question is other than, what does that say about us? What does that say about America? Well, um, I had a professional experience 
um, uh, very much along them lines. Um, mm -hmm. By what did the same thing, um, and there are conclusions that I reach from it. And mine is this: whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong remains to be seen. But I don't believe in inherent anything. You know, I believe in the choices we make because I find that that empowers me to be my best self, right? Mm -hmm. And what I think happens is when people say white women, it's not, well, white women are inherently this. It has a relationship, has to do with a relationship to power. Again, I think we live in a hierarchy, right? We don't acknowledge it, but it's the truth. I think that there is power in being a white man. There's less power in being a white woman, but there's more that they have than whoever's next on that rung, right? And I think that the Amy Cooper of the world or the, the supervisor that I had my experience with, the mistake they make is they say, well, you know what? I'm second on this hierarchy and I'm gonna defend second while railing against first, right? And what they don't understand is every ounce of effort they put into defending being second locks them into remaining second. The point is not to defend one's position in the hierarchy, it's to dismantle the hierarchy. We should all be heard. The truth, the truth should always prevail. And whether you're talking about a, an institution, whether you're talking about a town, whether you're talking about a country, we're all better off when the truth prevails. That's what a meritocracy is, right? The truth wins out and everything is apportioned according to the truth. You know, um, and we're less so when we decide, well, this person is going to get heard or this person will have uh, access to prosperity based on some physical characteristic, whether that be gender or race or sexual orientation. That doesn't, that doesn't create efficiency. It doesn't create justice, it creates inefficiency and injustice. Yeah, I 100% agree. And we were also talking off air a little bit about power and how that actually relates to, to your job now as an athletic director. Um, I mean, it's, an, it's interesting when we were just messaging each other on Facebook, it was uh, about leadership and coaching and coaching basketball and so forth. But um, as you said, you know, like like two two Amherst guys or two Amherst people that you know, it's just the conversation is going to go where it goes, um, and we're going to tie all this stuff together. Hopefully, can you talk about how you think about your job now as an athletic director, um, and the idea of power and and sort of what your goal or what your mission is? Yeah. So, um, left to my own devices, I would still be coaching. Um, mm. um, it tires me out in a way that's good. You know, um, it pushes my boundaries in a way that's good. I love that immediacy of competition, that test of can I do it or can I not? Um, but, you know, I had this professional experience and it aligned with some of the things you and I are talking about. Um, and I have this Amherst idea that, so let me back up. In Division Three, there was a statistic published not, not long after I had this experience, this Paul on the road to Damascus moment, um, that, that the stats says that there are more women coaching men in Division Three than there are Black coaches, right? And Black men, excuse me, coaching. And, um, I think of that as lack of diversity, right? I had this experience which really resonated with me as lack of inclusivity, right? It was an instance where um, I was being accused not of doing anything, but of being. I was told, you are negative, you are divisive, um, your coworkers don't respect you. Now, imagine a, a, a meeting in which you're told that, right? And I was processing that as, okay, so you're characterizing me, but not saying what I did, right? And um, 
I basically concluded within that moment that um, this is not acceptable, I'm gonna fight this, right? And so we kind of go through this whole process and um, in which I kept saying, well, what did I do? And I was never really given very much of what I did. And at the end of it, the person who was overseeing this whole process says to me, Adam, we know you didn't do anything wrong, but we want you to, um, to take her suggestion about this kind of rehabilitative exercise. And I asked, I said, so it seems to me you created this uh, landing point to spare her feelings. And the guy who's overseeing it says, exactly. And I couldn't think of a less inclusive experience than this one, right? And so that's what that lack of diversity, that lack of inclusivity, and I'm saying, okay, this is the framework you all create, right? In, in higher education, this is what we're supposed to talk about. We're not talking about affirmative action anymore. We're talking about diversity and inclusion. And I'm like, and you're claiming to be diverse and inclusive institutions, but that's not what I'm experiencing. And so it was in that moment I decided, okay, let me set my course on being an AD with the idea that um, hopefully I can contribute my little piece to writing this ship. And here's why I think it's important. Um, I see, and this is the Amherst moment for me, I see a connection between that lack of diversity, that lack of inclusivity in our institutions of higher education, as forward-facing institutions that are committed to shaping the future. I see those things, things lacking here, and I see it play out when uh, George Floyd is murdered, right? If, there, if it wasn't on video, the presumed lack of accountability that would have occurred, or when Trayvon Martin is murdered and there's no accountability. And I'm saying to myself, okay, if in a college institution, if in a college or university, we're trying to educate the next generation, those are the people who are gonna be the prosecutors. Those are the people who are gonna serve on the grand jury. Those are the people who are gonna be the judges. And we need to shape their thinking here to change the next 20 years so that there's not another murder and rebellion like in 1967, like in 1992, like in 2021. So I, I, I love it. I, I love everything you just said. And I guess there are a lot of different directions to go. One that I'm curious about is now in your job as an athletic director, um, how, do, how does, how's it going? Well, I've just started. Um, so I've been here, I think three weeks and I'm really excited about, um, you know, what we're doing. So we're crafting um, a hiring policy for our department, right? but every hire starts when the opening is created, you know? And so as part of our hiring policy, um, we're going to require there be an exit interview for every person who leaves, right? And so that we're offering ourselves up to be held accountable. Every person who's gonna leave is gonna be able to say, hey, you know what? Adam treated me really shabbily in this way, this way, or that way, right? And we're not gonna silence that, right? And, and we're gonna operate with the expectation that, you know what, the truth will win out. And we're not gonna try and massage the facts. We're not gonna try and shape the record. We're going to live on our word. Um, and then the next step in the process is, you know, we're working to ensure that we create diverse candidate pools. There's kind of a multi-step process in, in going from a big pool of candidates to a smaller pool. And at every step of the way, we have, we're creating policies and putting people in place to say, hey, is this the best we can do? Um, and so I'm really excited about that. That's not gonna be what the day-to-day -day operation of what I do is, but I'm excited about the possibility of contributing in that way. 
Um, and we're working to create student organizations to make sure that we hear the voices of marginalized students on our campus, whether they be students of color, whether they be um, you know, gay, transgender students, whatever. Um, I believe there, there's a narrative that, well, that's not how you win. You win with the kind of more conservative student body. But I don't believe that. Like I know, you know, athletic teams are really successful at Amherst, and I thought that Amherst students were open to, you know, a really diverse student population. I think that's the strength of the college we went to. It's one of the things that I took from it, and um, that's the future I want to help create. Yes, love that. But to go back to the personal for a second, it sounds like there were two important events that happened uh, amongst many others. One being this professional experience that you had and the other being Trayvon Martin, the death of the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, and, and going back to where we started as far as conversations with your children, um, was it that you were trying to present an optimistic um, view of America, but that internally you didn't really feel that? Or um, was it that after events X, Y, and Z, uh, your, your views changed? Uh, it's kind of a combination of both. Um, it was more, I didn't want that ugliness to visit their lifetimes. And I don't mean, I don't just mean I wanted to shield them from the violence touching them. I mean, I wanted to shield them from the idea that injustice could prosper, right? I wanted them to feel safe that they were protected in this world and that I wanted them to always feel as if the words that we write on the paper, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all abolence are people, that all people are created equal. I wanted them to know that for every second of their lived life, right? And, but there's no point in that if it's a lie, you know? Now, I do believe that all people are created equal. I don't believe that all people are held equal before the law, right? Or before the professional experience that I had. Um, now we can say that's the case, but again, let's look at Trayvon Martin, right? We can see the facts of that situation, you know, or um, had uh, George Floyd not been filmed, you know, Breonna Taylor, um, you know, it was a woman sleeping in her own bed, you know, and there was no accountability. Um, we can see that lack of equality is plain as day. Um, and so, but I can't fight those things, you know, after they happen in a way that's going to save that person. You know, the, the, where the experience I had came in was I got to see lies being constructed in real time. Like I was in the room, <laughs> you know, when they're, eh, that's not true. Well, we'll just say this, you know, and I'm sitting there watching this and, to be quite honest, I'm generally relatively well-spoken, but in my mind, I was saying, man, this is some bullshit, <laughs> you know? And um, it was distasteful, um, but it also parallels other experiences. So you referenced Emmett Till when we got off, when we were off air. Um, Emmett Till happened just because of the word of, is it Carolyn Bryant? Was that her mm -hmm. name? Mm -hmm because of what she said, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm in a room with a white woman who's just saying, you know, and it, it was parallel. And then against with Emmett Till, she didn't enact violence on him. Men were drafted to do that, you know? And in my case, um, this woman couldn't really do anything to me, but there was a man who could require me to jump through hoops to satisfy her, her uh, resentment, you know? if I complied, which I didn't, you know. Um, but there are these parallels. They might seem separate, and maybe this is this Amherst thing, 
but there are these parallels and I'm telling myself, okay, if the parallels work one way, they can work the other way. So if mm. they can reinforce processes, if we can interrupt them, we can interrupt other processes. We can make it unacceptable. And it was that that got me thinking about power and got me thinking about, well, there are people who we might call white, but who don't identify with whiteness. And how do, I, how do we help them see another way of organizing all of this? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and that's what got me thinking along those lines, that is relationship with power and you can pay attention to people's language. Um, and that's how we should organize ourselves. And, and so often the language of power is violent, right? Um, it used a great word, uh, interrupt. And one of my favorite films, a documentary called The Interrupters, and it's about um, gang violence workers in Chicago. And um, the, the head of this organization uh, is an epidemiologist. And he, he sort of has a theory that violence spreads in the same way that a virus spreads. And if you can interrupt the transmission, you can stop it. Um, and, and that's, I think, exactly what you're talking about. Um, they did a similar study in North where they mm. mapped they physically mapped it within mm. the spread of the location of, of violent crimes and they can, you can just see it over time. Right. And I think that, that one of the things that especially white people have trouble with is positioning themselves in, in part of a greater system and that, that, um, all of us are moving through a system that is directing us and affecting us, and it's these systems of power oppressing us. Um, and you know, maybe this is just the the Marxist in me, but you know, it, it all comes back to the idea of power and wealth and class and and um, the violence of that and how that violence justifies itself. I would agree. Um, I would also say that. Uh... In my view, we're facing a mighty big correction um, because I suspect that this need to hoard and this need to dominate is what fuels climate change. And uh, a more egalitarian way of seeing the world and seeing each other will lessen that need for me to have more and more and more and more, and, more. Um, and we can potentially heal our planet. But again, in order to get there, we have to reorganize ourselves. So interesting that you say that because I'm just looking at my notes here. And one of the questions that I had, and I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it up or not, because it's something that's been on my mind lately, is how do you think about climate change and race? Um, so I literally like have a little note right here, and I wasn't sure if I was going to ask it or not. Um, I think racism so. is climate change. Yeah, so talk, talk, talk about that, please. Um, I think that this, I don't think that racism started actually as racism. I think it started as desire for wealth and power, right? Yep. But once it was created, then it became real, you know, and this need to otherize, um, fuels this need to hoard resources, fuels this need to separate from each other. And I don't just mean separate in a, in a um, I mean in, in a literal sense. So the part of New Jersey I'm from, Newark after the rebellion, what's kind of going on, on along with that was the construction of highways and you know, redlining. So we're going to trap some people here and we're going to move other people further out. Well, how do they get back and forth? Cars. And um, I think that, you know, we organize ourselves in these ways and it creates physical realities. And those physical realities are leading us to burn more fossil fuels than we otherwise would, um, to uh, apportion resources in ways that aren't particularly efficient. Um, and the planet is telling us, hey, this ain't working. <laughs> and uh, we're not gonna win that fight. 
<laughs> um, you know, like we have to learn to live in harmony with the planet, with each other, not I'm going to dominate and exploit everything in sight. It's just not sustainable. Yeah, 100%. And I think, unfortunately, one of, one of the many awful things about this past, I guess, 15 or 16 months now with the pandemic is it's just sort of a, for me, I just sort of see a preview, a coming attraction of how the planet is going to handle climate change. Um, because you have a, sorry, go ahead. Well, sports have valuable lessons to offer in this. So, um, you know, if you think about basketball, what basketball actually is, every single possession is balancing what's good for me. Should I take this shot? Taking the shot is good for me versus what's good for the team. Should I move the ball? I'm tired. Should I really run hard? Okay, I'm going to stretch the floor and run the floor hard. That dude's big. That's Shaq coming down the lane. Should I take this charge? The team needs me to do it. You're always balancing the individual good versus the collective good while running around full speed in basically your underwear, right? And so there's no hiding from what actually is good for the group and, and how what's good for the group actually benefits individuals. It's obvious in sports. And, um, and I, if we're doing it right, we're teaching those lessons as we coach, as we teach. Um, if we're doing it wrong, then we say, okay, all the team is, is we're all just wearing the same color shirt, but everybody go out there and just pursue your self-interest. I love that. Okay, so if we talk um, coaching for a little bit, uh, both of us coach basketball. Um, what is, and, and you just, uh, you know, described the beauty of teamwork um, and coaching a team sport and being part of a team. As you think about um, team building, um, what are the things that go into that and into creating and building um, a, a positive culture? Uh, I think that positive culture is sometimes misconstrued. Um, so for example, I've observed this. You can have a team, right, that is successful and wins. And you will have people on that team who have whatever beef they have with how things are done, right? It's a positive culture if they're allowed to be their full self and, you know, when the time allows, say, hey, here's how I feel about it. It's not a positive culture if their voices are silenced for the reasons we've already gone over. But what happens is people equate conformity with positivity. People can equate this illusion that everybody's happy with being positive. When you coach basketball, I don't care if you go 30 and 0. If you got 15 dudes, at least five of them are unhappy, right? It's just the truth. And they should be allowed to feel that way. And, you know, part of that, that culture should be balancing how we feel versus what we actually do. You know, how we feel versus what actually happened. To me, that's a positive, positive culture because that's where growth comes from. We can't have, uh, can't live in reality without accountability, you know. And so how we feel, that's in our mind. What we do is in the world. You know, how we feel is in our mind. What actually happened is in the world. We share what happened. We share what we did, you know. And um, so for me, transparency and accountability are critical. Those are the foundations of a positive team culture. Doesn't mean everybody's gonna get along all the time, but you know, you gotta be straight, straight up about what it is you're trying to do. And you got to own what you did. And within that, we can argue, fuss, and disagree and still have a positive team culture. It's interesting. It sounds like, you know, one of the most important values, one of the central values is honesty. 
right? Whether we're talking about America and being honest about this is this is America, this is what's happening. Or we're talking about sports and team um, and team culture, quote unquote. That that we're honest about what happened. Everybody can feel how they feel, but we're honest about what happened. Yes. So you coached, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Somewhere in the course of the season, right? Everybody knows the truth, even if they don't say it, right? So like you could say, I'll give you an example. It's a real life example. End of a game, you're winning and you run the press break, right? And the idea of press break is to kill the clock, keep the ball, kill the clock, maybe score, right? Let me not say every team, but I've experienced this teammate, the guy who gets the ball in the press break and somebody else is open, but he holds it so he gets fouled. So mm. he the free throws, right? Mm-hmm. After some time, at first it was like, maybe he didn't see the guy, right? But after some time, everybody now knows this dude is about himself in this way, you know? Or somebody is like, you know, let's say you're struggling as a team defensively and this one dude is like, yeah, I'm just here to get buckets. I'm not trying to all this rotation stuff. I'm not trying to do that. There comes a point when everybody knows Right, you can't fix it unless you're honest about it happening, you know, and you have to say it. And that conversation isn't always comfortable, doesn't always feel good, but you're better for it if you have it. Hundred percent. I mean that. I think that is absolutely key. Again, with teams and with interpersonal relationships and in life. Um, and so much of, I think our culture, American culture is geared towards not having that conversation, not having an honest accounting of the facts. Um, what did you, what did you think coaching was going to be like before you became a coach versus what it was really like? I thought that it would be, I'd tell them what it was we could all accomplish together. Mm-hmm. That vision would then become reality. That's not what it's like. <laughs> so one of I'm, I'm, I, I didn't enjoy the, the pain of learning this, but I'm grateful for the experience of learning it. Um, we, I'll, I'll use the press break, press break as an example. Um, when I got to WNL, the, the program was down, had been down for a long time. And some of that's recruiting, right? Which I did. We had some good players. I want to say it was my third year, but we played Eastern Connecticut up in a tournament at Rochester. And um, I'm talking about the players because in this point in time, I was not sitting here thinking, okay, we need to upgrade talent or these guys aren't committed. It was clear to me that we had talent, right? And it was clear to me that the guys were committed. And it was just one young man, Femi Kashima. We were playing EastCon and uh, we were running a press break and Someone was supposed to cut middle, but instead of cutting middle, they ran up the opposite sideline. And Femi knew what the guy was supposed to do. He knew he was supposed to go middle, but he saw what he was doing. So he threw the ball to where the guy was going. Well, right as Femi threw it, the guy broke middle. Mm. The ball went out of bounds. And I remember, I was like, oh, that's going to be a turning point in the game. And it was, and we lost. And you know, season goes on. I didn't really have time to correct it. And we wound up, I think we were two and 23, right? We're awful. No, we're four and, we're four and 21. That's what I was, four and 21. Mm. And um, I remember that play being a turning point and Femi had the ball, but it wasn't Femi's fault. It was mine, right? Because what I realized was I had told them what our press break was and I had taught them our press break but I hadn't prepared them to do it, you know? And so when the season ended, I took everything apart and I said, okay, I'm going to prepare 
I'm using Femi, but it was really us. So when that situation comes again, we all are gonna do what we know what to do, you know? And it was learning. There's a difference between telling someone something, teaching them something and preparing them to do it. Um, and I was like, okay, coaching is understanding that and understanding how to navigate all three stages, which I didn't know going in. I thought, tell them, they do it. Um, so that was something that I had to learn. Um, but there was an experience that I had when I was still playing. Um, I was working out with uh, Jamal Wilson and Perry Moss up in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I'm up there for the summer and we're doing two a days. We're doing three, three and a half hours in the morning, three, three and a half hours at night. And like, I'm killing myself trying to keep up with these two and not winning anything, you know? Um, and I didn't know if the work was paying off. And we were in the gym so much, I got emotional. Like I hated basketball at this point, right? Cause we were just there all the time. And one of the guys came back, someone who previously just been a lot better than me and um, came back and I played against them. And I was like, oh, this is paying off. Cause all of a sudden I was better than him and it was not close. And um, that was a really valuable learning experience that the best of ourself is on the other side of being uncomfortable. Um, and so I kind of took those two things and put them together. And those are the conclusions I've reached about coaching that the best of ourself is on the other side of being uncomfortable. We have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that as a coach, I want to tell, teach, and then prepare. And the preparation is you got to get uncomfortable. You got to push yourself to this limit. And then the other side of that is, okay, I can do this with my eyes closed. Those are two such great lessons. Um, the, the first one, you know, going from teaching to preparing, I, I think any, any, hopefully any self-aware coach has that experience, you know, uh, after a few years, or as I used to say, um, when I train teachers, talking is not teaching. Um, but the second one, right, being comfortable with the uncomfortable, um, I don't know that many, many people get there. How do you, how do you translate that? Um, now you're now you're a head coach with those and, and having learned those lessons. How do you translate that to your team, especially getting comfortable with being uncomfortable? So say that again. So that that idea of get being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Um, now you're a head coach. How do you teach that to your players? Um, make them do it. <laughs> Just make them be uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. do you, do you, do you, do you prep? Do you, do you talk about this is why we're doing it or is it, what does it look like? Yeah. You talk about it in advance. Um, but I mean, you're saying those words for yourself. So you can say, I said it because like, let's be real. You're a college coach, right? And I literally don't care what you tell those kids. They think they're starting day one mm -hmm. or not day one, but they're looking at, they're hearing you but they're looking at the dude in front of you, in front of them going, I'm gonna take his minutes, right? And they don't even know what's required in your mind as the coach to take those minutes. And if you tell it to them, rarely do, rarely have I seen people get it until they've lived it, you know? And so um, you put them in situations where they are uncomfortable. And, you know, it's possible, like I kind of, as I started to reach those conclusions, it occurred to me that, maybe I was just confirming my own biases, but I don't think I am. So when you watch, you've been watching college basketball or aware of it for a long time. And you remember when we were young, 16s never beat ones, never, mm -hmm. it didn't happen, right? It's because both teams had veterans. Now we're one and dones, right? And with the one and dones, it funnels all the talent to the Kentuckys of the world because, hey, we can just go be one and done, right? Mm -hmm. But now you see 16 beating ones, 15 beating twos, 14 beating threes, because 
you have these new folks versus these people who've been hardened by disappointment, right? And you learn as you play to not let go of that rope. You learn to play every possession within a game as if that game was a single possession game. You know, well, if you look at the film and you lost by two, you don't look at the game winning shot. You look at the layup, you shouldn't have given up, right? And a hardened team learns to play every moment as if that moment is the one. And um, that kind of confirms for me that um, there, there's a depth of learning that comes from having experienced it, right? Mm-hmm. That's the prepare part is, okay, let's have them experience them this in practice so that in a game, we're not trying to learn from a loss, we're learning from practice so we can win, you know? Um, and I can explain that. If I explain that to a high school kid, they're sitting there like, yeah, 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 whatever, right? right. But when you explain it to guys who've been through it once, they go, oh yeah, no, I see it. Yep, yep, yep. And then they pass it on for you. you mm-hmm. know? But it doesn't, it doesn't remove the, the value of having experienced it. Yeah, for sure. It's funny, you know, I mean, one of the things you're touching on is, is being competitive. Um, and I don't, I'm happy not coaching because it's so all consuming. But there's, there's so many different aspects of it that I miss, whether it's teaching, whether it's relationships with the players, whether it's seeing, you, you know, being able to, to have an impact on, um, on the development of young people. And I also miss the competition. You know, there's so, so few opportunities we have in adult life to just be out and out competitive. Do you miss the competition? Um... There's a thing, and I don't know if this is the competition or the competition brings it out, but where your focus narrows and time slows, mm-hmm. it's that. Yeah. Um, and you make it, and it's like you're, I sort of call that like being, being in the shoot, like you just, you, decisions are coming, you're making decisions, and that's it. Yeah. I miss that. Um, yeah. But there's something that goes with that that I don't miss which is when you lay down at night and you close your eyes and you're seeing the game play out across your eyelids and you can't turn it off and you can't fully sleep. I don't miss that at all. (laughs) Um, It's funny because last year was the first year I wasn't coaching and it hit me. I think it was about November 5th. I was like, I can't sleep. It was one night. And it was my body saying, this is what you normally do. And I realized it and I was able to get to sleep that night and it hasn't come back. I don't miss that. But again, I don't think you can have the one without the other. And I do miss that narrowing of focus, but expansion of perception. Like that's, that's a hell of a feeling. I actually had a bad moment related to that once um, mm. after a game, cause you know, you just, you get to yeah. where you want to see. And I was walking past a parent. I looked dead at him. I know who he is. I looked straight at him. Didn't register because it was immediately. Mm-hmm. And your focus is locked. And he took that personally. He's like, he, I said, hello. And he was like, you don't even know who I am. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you are. And he's like, why didn't you say it? And I was like, I saw you, but I didn't see you. Right. You looked straight at me. I was like, I know. And he refused to believe me. And I can explain <laughs> it to you because you lived it, right? Yep, like, I know yep. exactly what you're talking about. Yep. If I hadn't lived it, he couldn't relate. 100%. Um, what you're talking about in terms of not sleeping and just replaying everything, the way sometimes it, it's similar to how I describe the difference between being an assistant coach and being a head coach. So assistant coach, you know, there's a minute left and you're up by 15 and at that point, you're almost like, you know, one of the guys on the bench. You're just having a good time. You're smiling and the game's going to be over in, in a little bit. And you're thinking about, okay, we're going to the locker room. And then this, as a head coach, you know, for me, at least up 15 with a minute left, I'd be like, they, they could hit five threes. <laughs> you know, like you could never relax. Yeah, there's that. Um, but there's also, 
somebody can get injured in this last minute. Yeah. You know, there's yep. well, your next game. Do you play again tomorrow? You know, yep. um, there's there's all these things. Um, and yeah, I, I try to take those into account as an assistant to take something off of the head coach's plate. Um, so when I went back to Amherst that year, and I was working with Hickson. Um, yeah, I tried to to do what I could to present him at all times with, hey, think about this, think about that. Whichever decision you make, I'm cool. I just want you to, you know, to have right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's one of the best things that that assistants can do is just present options, not necessarily in a way that um, becomes overwhelming, but just, you know, hey, so here's some things to think about, you know, etc. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that when, when I became a head coach, um, high school, I was 27. And the most stressful thing for me was the bus ride to away games, because if God forbid, if something happened and, and there was an accident and you're in the emergency room, it's in the phrase is in loco parentis, you're the parent in the hospital in your decision. And that's something I never, I'd never even considered um, as an assistant coach. Uh, but, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, I think as we both well know, it's, it's much more, um, it's much greater than wins and losses. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's let's end with a fun question. I was going to start with this, but uh, I'll end with it instead. Um, so you graduated. Already, sorry, I said I can already answer it, but I'm just. <laughs> so you graduated high school 1989. 1989. A number. Okay. Um, what music? What music were you listening to? 1989. 1989. A number. Another summer. Public enemy. <laughs> In your heart, because I know you got soul. <laughs> so yeah, Public Enemy. Um, my high school girlfriend had a. This is hysterical to me. She had this album that she used to love, Keith Sweat, "Make It Last Forever," right? And I was like curious because I was like, "This man can't sing, but I like it." And I was thinking I liked it because I liked her, right? And I definitely did like her. Um, but now I'm like 30 years later and I'm like, he can't sing, but that's a good album. And I'm like, how did he do that? Um, Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel was big. Uh, Roni, remember that song? Yeah. That yeah. video. Yeah. But uh, my prerogative and Don't mm -hmm. Be Cruel were large. Mm -hmm. uh, every little step I every take. Every little step. Yep. And, and Another then, great video. Uh, soul to Soul. Um, mm big um what was was their song back to reality or something back to life back yeah, to life back yeah to life. the line was back to life back to reality but that summer when i graduated it was fight the power yeah that was do the right thing came out do the right thing that summer that movie was like boom and the song i don't know if there's a song that better fits the soundtrack than that one like i'm like Despite showing the screenplay and say, hey, write a song, I never mm -hmm. did get the story. But yeah, it's fight the power. That's something. Mar Martha's Vineyard resident, part-time resident, Spike Lee. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny you mentioned Keith Sweat. And so, you know, now, of course, uh, like with Apple Music, you just hit favorites and whatever algorithm. And so it, it played this Keith Sweat song that I love. Um, it's from Twisted. the new... It, what's that? Twisted? I like that, but this is it's from the New Jack City soundtrack. It's my favorite Keith Sweat song, and it's my favorite song on the New Jack City soundtrack. I can't remember which one that one is. There you go, telling me no again. Oh, yes, yes. But we can't, you can't, I mean, we're socially responsible adults now, so we recognize how that <laughs> Right, that's a little, that's a little fucked up, the title. Yeah. 1992. But, uh, Right. Like, that's the song, right? Right. Now, eh. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the message is, although it's really just, um, you know, somebody who, who likes somebody else and she says, no, I'm not interested in you. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's funny you mentioned that. I just, this morning when I was doing errands, that song popped into my, my favorites list. Oh, my kids like Twisted. Yeah, it's a great song. That song is fired, Dad. I'm like, I know. <laughs> um, 
Adam, this has been great. Uh, I hope it's the the first of of many conversations that we have. Off, I mean, we've had conversation a few conversations before, but we didn't really know each other. Um, but uh, you know, we've we've become friends on Facebook and and all. And of course, we have um, one really good mutual friend. Um, great, great. So, coach. yep, another great basketball coach. Uh, so. You know, I'd invite Ray on the podcast, but <laughs> I already know the answer. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to ask him, but, you know, I already, I'm 99.9% sure. Well, um, I appreciate the invite, and um, the only way it could have been better was if it was late at night over Antonio's Pizza. Definitely, definitely, or um, Backdoor Donuts in, uh, in Oak Bluffs. Yeah, there you go. All right, sir, thank you very much. Oh, is there any... Um, I don't know. Are you on social media? Anything you want? People want to keep up with you or anything? Uh, I'm on Twitter, a hutch I, um, two eyes. Um, and uh, you can find me on Facebook, but it's just Adam Hutchinson. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, anybody who follows me, I'm willing to follow back. Um, I learned a lot from following people on Twitter. So. And you're the athletic director at, is it Earlham? Is that how you say it? Earlham Earl- College. Earlham College. I'm sure they. In Indiana, I'm very much committed to uh, social equality, both in word and deed. So I'm really fortunate to have found a home here. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. You have a great one. You too. That was my conversation with Adam Hutchinson. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.